If you would, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And we'll begin reading with verse 1 of that chapter. Revelation chapter 20, beginning with verse 1. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they set upon him, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in this first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But yet they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth, and compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven, and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night, forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of, the lo- book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Father, we come before you thanking you for your many blessings, thanking you for your word, thank you that we can hold a copy in our hands, read from it, study from it, and hear our preach. Father, we thank you for our pastor, and we pray that you will fill him with your power, with your spirit, as he comes and speak through him. And Father, I pray that your spirit will just flow throughout each and every aisle and each and every pew, and Father, into our ears that we will hear and and learn more about you and grow closer to you and, and go tell this world about you, Father. And we thank you for each and every one that's here. And I pray that you'll meet each and every need, Father. We're needy people and we need your touch and we need your strength. And Father, I pray that if one doesn't know you as a personal Savior, that today will be the day of salvation. And Father, we thank you for all that you're going to do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We continue our study in the book of Revelation. Tonight we come to chapter 20 and we're talking about the millennium. And uh, we are... Looking forward to the rapture, but I'm also looking forward to the millennial reign of Christ. You know, it'd be wonderful to be 
to have Jesus as the President of the United States of America, wouldn't it? Um, but in, in the millennial reign, he'll rule and reign from Jerusalem. And uh, it'll be a, a wonderful situation for all of us. When we come to the millennium, this is chapter 20, what we call the thousand-year chapter. A thousand years are actually mentioned six times in this chapter. The word millennium literally means a thousand years in Latin. There's some sincere and sometimes good Bible students that deny that there is a, a millennium or that there will ever be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. They sometimes spiritualize all of that and, and try to just take it away. But I think chapter 20 is pretty clear that there's going to be a millennial reign of Christ here on this earth. There will be a literal thousand-year kingdom for several reasons. First of all, to fulfill the Old Testament promise to Israel. Back in Luke chapter 1 and verse 30, the Lord made a promise, and I want you to notice what he says there, Luke chapter 1 and verse 30 and 31 down through verse 33. Luke chapter 1 and verse number 30. If I can find it, I'm the last few weeks been breaking in a new Bible and my pages are kind of sticking. But in, in chapter 1 and verse 30, he says, And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. And so the Lord promised there's going to be a kingdom. And there will be no end to that. Secondly, there's a thousand year reign in order to give a public display of Christ's glory to the nations on this earth. You remember God chose Israel to represent God and to to let the rest of the world see what God is really like. And Israel failed in many ways, didn't she? But God's going to raise up that kingdom during the millennial reign, and he is going to allow the rest of the earth to see the glory of God. And that again will be a wonderful time. Thirdly, I believe there's going to be a literal thousand-year kingdom in order to answer the prayer. When Jesus taught the disciples to pray, he taught them to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the next part of it? Thy kingdom come. It's going to be the fulfillment, the answer to that prayer, thy kingdom come. Fourthly, to fulfill the promise to the church that saints will reign with Christ. We have been promised that we'll have the privilege of reigning with Christ, and that will be fulfilled during the millennial reign of Christ. And then fifthly, to bring about the complete redemption of nature, as promised in Romans 18, or Romans 8, 19 to 22. God's going to lift the curse, well, that would be wonderful, won't it? I grew up in a large family. We had nine kids in our family, and we had to work in the garden. I think, God, I think my dad had the biggest garden in the county. And we had, to, we had to take care of the weeds and all of that stuff. And I would love to have a garden that had no weeds in it. Amen? Wouldn't that be wonderful? The curse will be lifted, and not just the weeds, but all that's involved in it. And then the last reason is to give man one final trial under the sovereign rule of Christ. And so, I believe there's going to be a literal thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. 
Now, as we look at this chapter, there's several things I want you to notice just very quickly. First of all, notice the binding of Satan. The binding of Satan. In verse number one, he says, I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a, li a little season. The binding of Satan. Satan has pretty much free reign. He still has to answer to God, and that's another whole message in itself. But one of these days, he's going to be bound, and that will be a wonderful thing, won't it? And he'll be cast into that bottomless pit for a thousand years. Notice the period when Satan is bound. Verses 1 and 2 tell us the period is going to be a thousand years. The last time the key to the bottomless pit is mentioned before this, it was back in the, when the fifth angel had it and released locusts upon the earth. These were armed with authority and power, and now this angel seizes that old dragon, the serpent, the devil, and flings him with a, uh, chains him with a mighty chain and flings him into the bottomless pit, and there he will be for a thousand years. Now, four of his titles are given to us. He's called the dragon... In, in, uh, in verse number 2, he's called that old serpent, he's called the devil, and he's called Satan. These are the names that all deal with, with the devil and with the, the, the Satan that's going to be thrown into the bottomless pit. The name devil is used 35 times in the New Testament. None of, the, none of his names in Scripture give, I don't believe, any basis for the the light, sarcastic names that sometimes people use about the devil. People sometimes talk about smutty face or old sleuth foot and things like that. Those are not names that are in the Bible. Those are sarcastic names. And I think we have to be careful about using names like that. God gives us the names here. I, there's nothing wrong with calling him the devil or the Satan or calling him the dragon or that old serpent. Those are Bible names. Use Bible names when you talk about the devil and who he, who he is. In Jude, verse 9, it says, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. Let the Lord take care of that. We don't have to use slang or, or use um, words that are, that are not appropriate. I think we need to be careful. But you know, some of Satan's followers are already chained. In fact, Jude, verse number 6 says, And the angel which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Again, 2 Peter 2, 4 says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. For a thousand years, the devil is going to also be chained and he is also going to be in this place of the bottomless pit. I don't know what all that is like, but a bottomless pit gives me the idea of something, if you are thrown into it and there's no bottom to it, you just keep falling and falling and falling and falling and falling and falling and falling. For a thousand years, can you imagine all that he's going to go to deal with? So the period of time he's bound is a thousand years. Notice the place where he is bound. The place, verse 3 again says, he's cast into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him 
that he should deceive the nations no more. I think this is poetic justice in God's dealing with Satan. For Satan thought that he had Jesus defeated when he put him in a tomb, didn't he? And he had that tomb sealed so that they couldn't take the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he himself is confined and sealed into this bottomless pit by an act of God. And there he rages in what will be the most secure prison that has ever been developed. And he will be there condemned. And you know what? He knows that's coming for him. He knows that. He has his thoughts to keep him company. Have you ever been in a situation where maybe it was a difficult time, maybe it was a dangerous time, and just your thoughts just flooded? You kept thinking about various things about your life. Sometimes when people are seriously ill and they, they, they're close to death, their life goes before them and they think about it. I think Satan's going to think about all of these things of, of his life that he's been involved with. His thoughts will keep him company and there'll be terrible thoughts that he'll have to deal with. Thoughts of the day that he was created, when he was mature, when he was magnificent, when he was mighty, made from the hand of God. Thoughts about the wide world that he once was involved in and ruled as the anointed cherub. Thoughts to the ways in which he once led the worship of all the angels of heaven. What an amazing thing to have been a part of. Thoughts of God's throne. He had the privilege of seeing all of that. But then thoughts of how he tried to seize the throne of God. He wanted to be as God. Thoughts of his fall from heaven. Thoughts of his entrance into the Garden of Eden. Thoughts of the short-lived triumph that he thought he had when Adam and Eve yielded to him and sinned. Thoughts of the sentence that was passed upon him as he was cursed there in the Garden of Eden. And as the Lord promised that the, the promised seed would, would bruise his head. Thoughts of Calvary when he tried to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ and, and in turn, literally, the devil went down in utter defeat because Jesus didn't stay dead and buried. He arose from the dead. Amen? Thoughts of the fleeting moments when he will be able to bring the world during the tribulation period to bow before the beast. Thoughts of the lake of fire that is just ahead for him. He's given a thousand years of confinement with all of these thoughts to flow through his mind. And then notice the purpose for which he is bound. Again, verse 3, he's cast into the bottomless pit. He's shut up there. A seal's put upon him. And then notice this. It says that he should deceive the nations no more. Won't that be a wonderful time? When the devil's not able to deceive anymore. The Bible says that there are people who are ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. The reason for that is because Satan is deceiving people. Satan, his, he has been causing people to, to, to follow his false thinking and false lies and false religion and false ideas. But for a thousand years, this world will be free from the deception of the devil. Romans chapter 16 and verse 20 says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. Amen. So we see the purpose for which he is bound. And then I want you to notice in verses 4 and 5, the first resurrection. He says in verse number 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus Christ, 
And for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. There's a phrase that people use a lot of times that is called the general resurrection. Can I tell you that a general resurrection is not found in the Bible? Some people have the idea there's going to be a general resurrection and everybody's going to be raised at that time. There's not a general resurrection. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 speaks about a, a resurrection to everlasting life and a resurrection to shame and contempt. The Bible says that many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke about resurrection to life and resurrection to damnation. And these two resurrections are separated by a thousand years. 1 Corinthians 15.23 says, But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Now, the, the Apostle Paul used the analogy when he spoke of the resurrection. He used the analogy to the feast of the firstfruits, which consisted of three parts. There was the sheaf, and then the harvest, and then the gleanings. Christ, the Bible says, is the firstfruits. They that are Christ, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, talks about the dead in Christ. They're going to rise first. So you have Christ as the firstfruits, and then the dead in Christ that rise, that's the harvest, and then those that died during the tribulation for the witness of Christ make up the gleanings, all of that uh, analogy of the feast of firstfruits. All of that is included in the first resurrection. Then we come to verse 4 and 5 and 6, and we come to the millennial reign of Christ. And he tells us here about the millennium, which again speaks of a thousand years, and that's mentioned six times in this chapter. And it establishes us for, the, the, for us the length of that millennial reign of Christ. Verse number 2 tells us Satan is bound for a thousand years. And then in verse 3, Satan deceives the nations no more till the thousand years are finished. And then thirdly, resurrected saints reign and rule with Christ for a thousand years. That's found in verse number 4. Verse 5, the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years are finished. And then we find in Verse number 6, the resurrected shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. We get to reign with him, amen, and be a part of his kingdom. And then the sixth thing he tells us, the sixth time it's mentioned is in verse 7, Satan is loosed out of his prison at the expiration or at the end of the thousand years. So he's going to be bound for a thousand years, and then at the end he's going to be let loose for just a little season. And we'll see in a few moments what happens during that time. Despite these six definite mentions of a thousand years here, there are some people who hold to the belief what they call amillennial. The amillennial position, it's just all is no, it means no millennium. There are those who believe there's no millennium. The Old Testament writers saw the reason, uh, the, the reign of Christ rather, and they expressed their views in uncertain language. They made it very clear. During the millennium, the armies of the nations, when you think about this, they will be disbanded. There will be no more need for armies. The great military academies, they will have fallen to ruin and decay. The weapons of war will all have been melted down to implements of peace. 
Jerusalem will become the world's capital. The throne of David is there, and the twelve apostles will be involved in that kingdom, and they will be judging the twelve tribes of Israel. For Israel, Christ, in Jerusalem, in Israel, Israel will be ruling the world. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, the Arabs don't want to hear that, do they? They don't believe that, but the Bible does. The millennial temple would have, will have been built on Mount Moriah, and the nations of the earth will come there to worship the true and the living God. Prosperity will fill this world. Poverty will be unknown. We started a, I think it was Lyndon Johnson started the war on poverty. And I think it's only gotten worse since he started all of that. But there's coming a day when there will be no more poverty. Every, can you imagine every person will have all they need literally to their heart's desire? There'll be no prisons. There'll be no hospitals. There'll be no mental institutions. Some of you can breathe a sigh of relief. There'll be no barracks. There'll be no saloons. There'll be no houses of prostitution. No gambling casinos. No rest homes. The cemeteries will all be crumbling relics of the past. They're gone. Tears will be rare. The Bible says the wolf and the lamb and the calf and the lion and the cow and the bear and the child and the scorpion are all at peace with each other. Why is all of that? Because Jesus has come and set up his kingdom. The golden age has dawned at last. There will come a golden age. And the Bible says that the earth is filled with the knowledge of God. And Jesus Christ is Lord, and he will rule and reign. He'll rule the nations. And here's an inter interesting thing. He'll rule the nations, the Bible says, with a rod of iron. Now notice in verses 7 and 8 and 9, you have the post-millennial revolt. After he's bound for a thousand years, he's going to be loosed for a little season. Verse 7 says, when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the, uh, the camp of the saints about in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now think about this. A thousand years, he's bound. He's let out for a little while. During that thousand years that Satan is bound and in the bottomless pit, and Jesus rules and reigns from Jerusalem, there are going to be a lot of babies that will be born during that thousand years. And those children will be born with a sinful nature. And they will need to be saved just as we do today need to trust Christ as our Savior. Sometimes today, children of believing parents, children who are raised in church, children who are in a Christian family, sometimes become what we call gospel-hardened. Right. They hear the gospel so much and so often, if we aren't careful, we, we can become hardened to it. During the millennium, these children are going to become glory-hardened. They're going to see the glory of God but they're going to become calloused and hardened to it. They will submit to the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ and to the strict rules of the kingdom, but only because to rebel against that would mean instant punishment. And sin will reign in secret in their hearts. And then when the devil is released for a short period of time, their, re, their, their hearts will be fertile soil for the deception of Satan, and they will follow him. 
But I'm glad to tell you, verse 9 says, their rebellion will be short-lived and severely punished. He says, they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about. And the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Amen. Can you imagine? They, they, they encompassed Jerusalem. They're going to take it over. Who's reigning from Jerusalem? Jesus is. So that means they're going to take him down. God says, no, you're not. Fire comes out of heaven and devours them. It's going to be a short-lived rebellion. There's not going to be a battle. It's just going to be fire and done and over with and gone. Zap. And that's the end of it. They're gone. By the way, if you believe in purgatory, you don't find a second chance here. It just comes and it's gone. It's over with. And they'll face the torment of hell forever and forever. And then verse 11 tells us about the great white throne judgment. It says, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Satan has persuaded men and women and boys and girls for many years that there is no future punishment and there is no final accounting before God. That lie is fully exposed here in Revelation chapter 20. Notice the setting. You see in, in, in verse 11, there's going to be a great white throne. The, there's a background that's given to us here. And in this background, there's several terrible things that I want you to notice. First of all, there's a terrible fact. Verse 11 says, I saw a great white throne. The terrible fact is, there is a great white throne. No matter what you think or what you believe, there's coming a time when there's going to be a judgment, the great white throne. Now remember, there's going to be the judgment seat of Christ. That's going to take place for believers in heaven. The great white throne judgment is only for unbelievers. The lost will stand before him. They will give an account. There will be a judgment. There will be an accounting before Almighty God. It's a terrible fact. They stand before that throne of Almighty God and see the purity and the righteousness and the holiness of God that is so intense before them. Look at what verse, the rest of verse 11 says, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. There's a terrible figure here. They stand before Almighty God. They stand before the Lord Jesus Christ who sits on that throne. John sees him, and John knows him. The nail prints are in his hand. The spear marks in his side. The scars on his brow and on his back. The marks of which wicked men have tortured and crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Men have ignored him. Men have denied him. Men have cursed him. Men have disbelieved him. Men had sold him. And now... Man stands before him, and now he is their judge. A terrible figure. And then there's a terrible fear. It says, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Can you imagine the face of God? It's an interesting story. Sometime when you have time, study through the Bible all the places where it talks about the face of God. And here when they see the face of God, the Bible says, Heaven and earth fled from the face of God. 
To look upon the face of Jesus for you and me as a child of God is joy beyond words. The songwriter said it will be worth it all when we see Christ. And it will be. But for the unbeliever, I believe it will be the first agonizing stab of hell to see the glory and the purity and the might of God. And in fear, they're cast into the lake of fire. The earth and the heavens, it says, fled away. What a face it is. The ungodly spat upon it once. They ripped his beard from off of his cheeks, but now they gaze upon his face in fear and torment. And then notice the terrible fellowship that is here in verse number 12. He said, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The dead, small and great. Dead souls are united to dead bodies. And in fellowship of horror and despair, they stand before God. Little men and petty women whose lives were filled with pettiness and selfishness and nasty little sins, they'll all stand before God. And their lives that have amounted to nothing will be there. Those whose sin, sins were mean, those whose sins were spiteful, those who were vulgar, those who were common, those who were cheap, the great will be there, the small will be there. Men who sinned with a high and mighty hand. Men like Alexander and Napoleon. Men like Hitler and Stalin will be present there. Men who went for wickedness in grand, great scales. As far as the world stage is concerned. All of them died unrepentant. They'll stand before Almighty God. And every single one of them will face their sin and face their God and be judged for all of eternity. That's a horrible fellowship of people to be there. Look at chapter 21 and verse number 8. The Bible talks about who's going to be there. It says, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Well, that's a rough crowd to be in. But every lost person, every unbeliever, every person who's rejected Jesus Christ will be a part of that crowd. The great white throne. And then there's the books. The books. He said, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. Psychologists assure us that nothing that we have ever experienced is ever really forgotten. The subconscious mind stores it all up in neat little compartments. Well, for some of us, they're neat compartments. For others, they're a little different. But we store that up in neat little compartments. People that have been saved from drowning have testified to the fact that in the last moments before they thought they were gone, their whole life flashed back before them. Why? Because all that's stored up there it's never really forgotten. God keeps records of everything. And it's all written down. Verse number 12 says, the books were open. There are two books in particular that are mentioned by John. First of all, there's the book of life of the Lamb. The book of life of the Lamb. John says, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. This book is the Lamb's book of life, in which are written the names of all of those from the beginning of time till the end of time that have been saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This book is vast. The names in that book are many. Every kindred, every nation, every people, every tribe, every tongue, the Bible says. 
Every level of society, every culture, every climate will be represented in this book. It contains the name of hopeless sinners who trusted the Lord Jesus Christ and were saved from the wrath of God. They were born again into the family of God. It contains the names of people who are long deluded by false religion. And finally, they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and put their faith in Christ alone and their names written in the book. What a wonderful privilege it is to know that our name's written down. No matter what, the question is, is your name written in that book? Is your name there? That's the most important thing for you and for me. We sing a song sometimes that says, there's a new name written down in glory. And it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. Aren't you glad your name's written down there? And then there's the book of the lives of the lost. John says, And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Nothing can save the man who is determined to stand before God on his own record. The man who insists, I'm doing the best I can. There's two things I want you to remember tonight. Salvation is always based on faith. Judgment is always based on works. Salvation's never based on your works and my works. It's based on our faith in the work of Jesus Christ. But here they're going to stand there before the Lord and they'll be judged according to His works. The sinner can either ask God for a free pardon or he can demand a fair trial. If he chooses a fair trial, he'll end up in the lake of fire forever and forever. He'll be judged according to his works. To receive a free pardon, we have to plead that we're guilty. We have to be willing to fall upon the mercies of God and say, God, I am a sinner and I accept your salvation offer through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to do that before it's too late, amen? While we still have time. When the books are open, God's going to judge, Romans 2.16 says, the secrets of men. Now remember, we're talking about the great white throne judgment. That's only unsaved people. We're not talking about saved people. As saved people, we're never judged for our sin. Our sin was judged on the cross. Jesus Christ took that judgment. But the lost man will be judged according to his works. Yes. Sins will be open, the secret sins, the open sins, the flagrant sins. God's going to judge the things that we have left undone as well as the things that we have done. I say we, I'm talking about the unsaved at the judgment seat of Christ, and thank God we're not going to be a part of that. They'll be judged not only for what they do, but for what they are, sinners. And we are sinners not... Because we sin, we sin because we are sinners. We were born into this world as sinners, and because of that old sinful nature, we do what we do because we are what we are. Amen? The lost will be weighed and measured by the holy character of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will be shown what Romans 3.23 says, that they have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so we see... God's going to judge them. And then notice the summons that's given in verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. This is how men will be brought before the great white throne judgment. There is no hiding place. 
Look at that verse again. The sea gave up the dead which were in them, in it. Everybody who's died and been buried at sea, God's going to bring them out of the sea. And death and hell delivered up the dead. Those who have died and gone to hell, they're going to be brought out. They'll come out of the tombs. They'll come up from the deepest sea. They'll come from the Arctic waste. They'll come from the burning sands. They'll come out of the tropical bush. bush. And every single one. In an interesting, God knows where every speck of human dust is. And God will gather it together. And at His word, it will come rushing back to make again the forms of the dead who died without Christ. Their Bibles, their bodies will rise from the dust and their souls will come up from hell. Back they will come with faces scarred and ruined by sin to be judged according to their works. Well, I'm sure glad I'm not going to ever be judged according to my works. Thank God Jesus paid it all. And then notice the sentence in verses 14 and 15. He says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The books have been read. Every mouth has been stopped. And all those who are found there are found guilty before Almighty God. The terrible words are spoken that come from Matthew 25 when the Lord said, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Depart from me. Terrible words to have to hear. Depart into everlasting fire. It was to save men from this that Jesus Christ went to the cross. He came and suffered and bled and died so we'd never have to hear the words, Depart from me. It was to warn men of this that God wrote the Bible and gave us His Word so that we would know how to be saved and wouldn't have to hear those words depart from me. And now, it's our decision. We can repent and be saved. Or we can reject Jesus Christ. Then it'll be too late. Now we can do something about it, can't we? We can trust Him. And so tonight, in closing, I want to ask you, is your name written in the book? Have you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you know Him? Most of us here tonight would say, yes, I'm glad I'm saved. I'm glad I never have to worry about the judgment seat of Christ. But let me ask you another question. Are we doing our part to keep other people from going there to the judgment seat of Christ? Are we giving the gospel? Are we giving out gospel tracts? Are we witnessing on the job? Are we witnessing to our family members who are lost? Are we witnessing to our neighbors, those around us? Are we doing our part? It's wonderful to say, praise God, I'll never have to be there at the great white throne judgment. But my, we ought to have a burden to help keep other people from going there too. Because others will hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you, and be cast in the lake of fire forever and forever and forever. Thank God we'll never have to face that. But oh, may we never lose the burden and the compassion to try to keep other people from going there. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we rejoice in the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. 
And we look forward to that. Hasten the day. We pray with, as John did, even so come Lord Jesus. But we know that after that, for a little short period of time, the devil's going to be loosed and he'll gather together those who have obeyed the rules because they feared the punishment. But now they follow Satan and they come around Jerusalem and ready to destroy it and you just send fire from heaven and wipe them out. And then they stand before the great white throne. The books are open, they're judged. There's no hope for them then, it's too late. Depart from me, workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And they're cast into the lake of fire. Lord, that may be some of our relatives. Maybe our neighbor. Maybe the person we work next to in the factory. Maybe the one we sit next to in school. Lord, don't let us go through life and not care. Give us a fresh burden. Give us the compassionate tears. Help us to care and to make a difference. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.